You're listening to On the Radar, conversations with extraordinary women in science. I'm Julia Gray. This podcast series is brought to you by Anderson Press to celebrate the publication of I, Ada, a novel that explores the tumultuous teenage years of Ada Lovelace. It's available now. From a very young age, Ada's imagination and curiosity filled her with a passion for experimentation. Her lessons with her governess were varied and broad-ranging, encompassing not only arithmetic and spelling, but also geography, drawing and music. Ada loved to build towers of wooden blocks and was entranced by the dissection of a dragonfly. Her tour of Europe served to deepen her interest in the world around her, and after her return, the discovery of a dead crow led her to ponder the logistics of flying. Before long, she was designing wings, and thereafter a steam-powered flying machine. She planned to write a book that she would call Flyology, and delighted in turning the tack room in the stables of her house into a kind of laboratory. My guest today is Dr. Vanessa Lowe. Vanessa has a BSc in Cell Biology from the University of Manchester, a PhD from University College London, sponsored by the British Heart Foundation, and at the moment she is a postdoctoral research associate at Queen Mary University in London. Welcome, Vanessa. Hey. Hey, Julia. It is so nice to have you here. Can you describe your work, what it is that you do? Um, so currently I'm a postdoctoral researcher at Queen Mary University. Um, I am sponsored by the British Heart Foundation to research heart failure, so different models of heart failure. Currently I'm looking at how myocardial infarction, which is a heart attack, um, how people can recover from that following a heart attack. So um, usually people have, if they have a heart attack, a lot of people now survive, but they have functional differences um, following that heart attack and so usually they're somehow restricted in their daily exercise and they could have further heart events so we're trying to find ways of helping them recover fully from a heart attack. Ah, That's so interesting what what kind of ways are you currently exploring? Um, So originally I was looking at regeneration so getting the heart cells to grow back Um, Because when you have a heart attack, a lot of your heart cells die and they never grow back and that reduces your heart's function. Um, But currently I'm also looking at how to get blood vessels back to the part of the heart that was blocked in the heart attack. So yeah, how to get vessels to grow back into your heart to get it to function again. I see. So what would, um, I'm going to come back to the regeneration and the blood Mm. vessels in just a moment. But what I'm very interested in is what a typical day is like for you. Are you in the lab all day? Uh, yes, uh, most of the time, yeah, I'm in, in the lab. Um, I work with animals. Yeah. And so we do different types of surgeries on the animals to, see, to kind of stimulate or simulate um, a heart attack and then uh, monitor them using a echocardiography, which is what you would use if you're having an ultrasound. So an ultrasound machine, like you would do, with babies um, during pregnancy so you look at the way the heart is functioning so that's what I usually do so about doing surgeries and looking at the function of hearts and then I use um, cells so I grow cells and look at how they function as well and then yeah analysis and using microscopes to look at things 
Yeah. Are you part of a team or do, does much of your work, uh, is it done independently? Um, so I'm part of a team. So I, I work under Professor Adrian Hobbs, who's at Primary University, and he has about nine or ten researchers working for him, looking at different aspects of heart failure and also looking at lung function. So we work in different types of projects. Because they're really connected, aren't they? The heart function and lung function. Yeah, absolutely. Um, What are the biggest challenges for you in your work? What's the thing that you find the hardest? I think I speak for most biologists and most scientists in this, that um, it's probably the failures of uh, experiments. So sometimes you design something and you think you've thought it thoroughly you try something and it fails and you don't know why or something you've done many times before suddenly starts to fail and you don't know why so (laughs) some of the biggest challenges we come across in a practical way is getting around experiments that don't work Um, I see and managing your response to them I suppose and yeah trying to (laughs) think of another solution yeah being quite resilient and creative in your ideas to like troubleshoot or figure out why things have gone wrong I think it's uh, I often think about the growth mindset versus the fixed mindset and when I was um, when I was young these weren't you know terms that were used in education and I was never told that it was okay to make a mistake or to fail and I think it's so important Mm. to talk about the ways that failure can make us more creative Um, but of course yes I can see how they're also the most frustrating things as well especially when you're dealing you're dealing with the heart Um, and how about the the opposite the most satisfying thing for you in your job well they're sort of connected so it's when you finally figure it out and it finally works uh, you get that satisfaction and that feeling of reward that something you created or something an idea you came up with worked um yeah so that's definitely connected to the failures so yes every, every yes. time there's something that goes, every time there's something that frustrates you later down the line there's hopefully something that will make you happy again <laughs> is there a recent example of of an experiment that went that went the way you were hoping it would go when the way i was oh yes there was i tried um using a particular uh drug to help um recover after a heart attack and it was it was we weren't entirely sure which way it would go and we were hoping that it would help improve the, the function and it and it did quite quite impressively um and that was really nice because it takes so long to go from so you wait for six weeks for the whole experiment so you don't know for six minutes for six weeks so, oh that's a long time um, yeah <laughs> so once uh, after the six weeks and i had a look at the results it it showed that it worked and it, it just makes yeah it was a great moment that's so satisfying and then in terms of timing how long would it take from that point to a point where that drug could be available you know in pharmaceuticals yeah so it depends on many many aspects so it will depend on whether that particular drug then works in humans mm-hmm. outside of an animal model and whether it works in cells and so um yeah then you have to in theory, find someone to mass produce it and you have to find um, some people to be recruited for a clinical trial and it has to go through many, many, many levels of criteria and um, validation before it can be. Yeah. So it could be years. It could be years. It could be years. Yeah, it could. Yeah. So, (laughs) but but for example, at the moment, um, because of the urgency, COVID drugs and trial vaccines, etc. are being fast-tracked. So they're kind of skipping a few of those steps. But something like this, that isn't. Yep. 
Uh, international emergency yeah Yeah. (laughs) will take longer so yeah it can vary depending on yeah the the level of yeah whether it's a special crisis moment or not in fact speaking of speaking of COVID-19 it's transformed everybody's workspace to some degree has it changed things for you yes absolutely so in two in two ways (laughs) the first way is that um obviously the labs were closed for a while um they recently opened but when they were closed, that meant that the majority of my work that I do, which is in the lab, was no longer able to be done. So I had to sit at home and work from home, like many people, um, and find different ways to to do my research. So that included doing a lot more reading and making presentations and posters and things like that. So and doing all the analysis. So I think I was, I was taken away from my labs, but um, now we can go back. It's just a lot less people and you can do less research because you can't be there as much so you're really restricted on what you can do and how you can do it you can't work with people no we used to be we, we work a lot in collaborations and help each other and we can't do that now <laughs> so no, it's, it's hard isn't it yeah, when you want to you want to sit there and brainstorm with somebody you want to be side yeah. by side at putting post-its on a on a wall yeah. and suddenly you've got to kind of maintain social distance yeah. it's as I say that even some of our experiments we need to work in pairs and we need to work together physically but we can't so some yeah. experiments just can't happen and the other thing that COVID has changed was that I then worked in a different lab so I worked in the the COVID test center labs so <laughs> and how was that how was that for you was it it was a really interesting experience it's a different way of working versus research and um, research you get to kind of make your own schedules make things up or get like change different ideas like change your ideas but in this context it was extremely important to do things really thoroughly and um buy the book exactly the same way and like um you had a time limit always to get things turned around but it was a really good experience um yeah and we helped yeah we helped process some swabs for the nation yeah it must have felt good to be on the on the ground as as it were sort of doing that at the time because it was just so urgent and important and still is yeah very interesting and interesting too I I guess to just be taken out of your comfort zone to somewhere totally new see something different um I'd love to ask you about about zebrafish which was one of your special research interests when you were looking at regeneration of the heart is that right yes yes exactly yes tell us about how you investigated that right yeah so um this was during my phd this was my phd project to work on zebrafish so zebrafish are a more recent model that have been used for lots of things like behavioral studies and development but they were also found out to be able to regenerate all sorts of organs such as their fins or eyes and parts of the nerve some of their central nervous system and also their hearts and <laughs> um so if you damage their hearts they can grow it back and it gets regains function and that's not something that humans can do so we have this damage following a heart attack and then that damage is permanent and so your heart just has to readjust to that damage like a permanent scar um but in zebrafish they just fix everything and it goes back to normal essentially are they are they unique in the in the fish world well they are are not in that respect they there's also a type of fish in mexico called the mexican cave fish that can also do the same um but they are yeah there's two types of mexican cave fish some that lived in the cave 
and some that evolved outside of a cave. Oh, wow. And the ones that evolved outside of the cave can regenerate their hearts, and the ones that evolved inside the cave don't. <laughs> so and does anyone sh- have a theory as to why that is the case? Oh, there's a, a lady in Oxford researching that, so I'm not actually entirely sure, but um, yeah, hopefully in the next few years she'll let us know. Um, also, newts, they also mm. regenerate their hearts. Um, and also, very early in development, early in life, after birth, um, most mammals can. So mice and rats can, up to seven days old. And humans are able to regenerate their hearts up to six months old. That is an extraordinary evolutionary quality, isn't yeah. it? <laughs> but we lose, for some reason, we lose that ability shortly after birth. Do you think there would be a way to use uh, stem cell technology to allow humans to regenerate parts of their heart? Yeah, that's definitely something that people are attempting to do. And so they are um, growing some stem cells or yeah, heart cells that they've put into a dish and placing them back into the heart. Uh, I think it's a little while down the line, a few years away, if it, if it does work. Um but it's, there's definitely potential. If if the problem is that we have lost cells, if you can replace the cells, then it should provide wow. a solution. That's that sounds fascinating. Um, and and now your area of research is blood vessels. So mm. tell me a little bit more. Are you using some? Is there a parallel in the way that there was with the zebrafish for yes, your uh, current research? Yeah. So the blood cells provide all the nutrients and the oxygen for the cells. So it's all well and good putting the cells there, but if you don't provide them with some oxygen or some nutrients or somewhere to remove waste, then they won't survive. So it's actually quite, it's important to have both of them. So you need to be able to support both vessels and and the cells. So yeah, we're using different drugs or different targets that will encourage vessel growth, blood vessel growth. Why did you end up choosing the pathway that you chose? And if you hadn't decided to become a biologist with a specialism in the heart, do you think there's another kind of scientist that you might have become? Or was this always your passion? Uh, no, yeah, I, I have a general interest in biology. So my undergraduate was biomedical science and then it was cell biology. So I liked anything that was a cell and cells are everywhere in your body. So <laughs> as long as it was a cell, I was happy. Um, I went to Reno, Nevada, in a, the University of Reno, Nevada, for a year abroad during my undergraduate. And that's where I learned about electrophysiology, so the process of, like, yeah, the movement of electrons through cells. And your heart, if you look at an ECG, is basically a giant electric <laughs> machine. Um, so it ended up me moving into that sort of direction because I... I had the experience by chance when I went to do that project in America to learn about how um, electrons move in in in, the, in biology, and yeah, and translated that to cardiovascular science. I see. So that's where it came from. It's always such a nice thing, I think, when you're able to go and study somewhere different because it just gives you that different perspective, those other ideas about things. Yeah, Nevada sounds amazing. Yeah, <laughs> it was a, that was a very fun experience. Too. <laughs> who um, who have been your role models or your mentors? Yeah, I had some mentors. For, so when I was in um, secondary school, there was one older kid that I knew, and um, that was my like mentor at school. 
that I saw went to went on to do medicine and I was just in, intrigued by that um, because it wasn't very common for people to go on to do medicine from my secondary school and I went to the university the same university as that particular student um, so that encouraged me and I would say that that was something that yeah having that is actually mental definitely encouraged me to go in that direction and continue doing what I enjoyed um, and more recently is my PhD su- supervisor. She was very inspirational. She was basically a superwoman. <laughs> so I was I was her first PhD student, so I um I was kind of a prodigy in a way as well. <laughs> so um yeah, and I learned a lot from her and how she approaches science and what she wants to do and how driven she was. And so yeah, I would definitely call her one of my role models. Oh, I, we love superwomen. Yeah. And, and how about um any scientists? in the past that have inspired you? Yeah, so I, I was thinking about that when I had the question. Like, I I never really had that sort of, um, yeah, like, I never had a particular role model that I wanted to follow. I always followed what I enjoyed. I didn't mm. think, oh, because of this scientist, I want to try this. Or I just, it, I knew I enjoyed science and I knew I found engaging, so I just continued doing it. And it wasn't because of, a particular cardiac surgeon or a particular or like, uh, doctor once upon a time that I was like, ah, this is what I want to do. It was, just it was following, it was following your heart, literally. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> good puns thrown in there. <laughs> it's hard to resist a good pun. Yeah. I think it's the yeah. best way to do it, just to do what you love. Um, what yeah. do you want to do next? Do you see yourself staying uh, in this this area of research? Do you see yourself moving somewhere different, another discipline? What's your plan? Yeah, just like how I ended up in heart research and cardiovascular studies. I've always said I'm a little bit like a boat with a sail. I just go wherever the wind blows me because as long as it keeps me engaged or interested. So I ended up in cardiac research just by because by chance and so if something else presents itself in the future I would go for it too as long as it's something sciencey or interesting I definitely enjoy um education and like mm-hmm. uh, public engagement and any way I can encourage other scientists in the future to to pursue their science dreams so uh, and explaining to people in the public what I do and and things that people might not fully understand so some some form of I don't know, in the in a mu- museum, for example, you know, you see those kind of interactive pop-up educational things, like helping to design things like that and, oh, and wow. games or videos or things like that. So, oh, God, you'd be so amazing at that. It's so funny. If I, I remember, you know, the time when there was no interactivity in museums yeah. and everything was kind of above the child's head and yeah. literally, and now everything is more sort of like they can, a three-year-old can reach out and touch something and it's it's so much more immersive for them. It's so cool. Yeah, it's definitely important to learn by doing or seeing and feeling, so having every form of it's so true. involved. It's yeah. so true. So in fact, dovetailing very much from that, what would advice would you give to a young person a child or a teenager um, who wants to become a scientist or a biologist? What advice would you give them? Um, I would tell them that they need to make sure they enjoy it. Just keep going if you enjoy it. Like, um, don't let any negative experience completely deter you. Um, if you keep trying and keep persevering, you are a scientist in the first place. Like, life is about failures and then 
successes and that's what science is like <laughs> so um yeah if, it, if you enjoy it keep going um and there's no right or wrong decision so if you try something and you didn't enjoy it then try something else it doesn't have to be your be all and end all decision so you can always change so give it a go if you want to try it if you enjoy it keep with it I think that's perfect advice. Vanessa Lowe, thank you so much for joining us today on On The Radar. It's been such a joy to have you. No worries. Thank you for inviting me. Here's an extract from iAda, which goes into a little more detail about Ada's own experiences of experimentation. This scene is set in 1828, when Ada is nearly 13. She is hard at work on her flyology designs and her beloved governess, Miss Stamp, is helping her. We have by now reached the stables. The strong, musty odour of straw and manure greets us as we push open the swing door. My governess picks up her feet carefully as we make our way down the narrow corridor towards the tack room. The four Bifron's horses whinny and snort, hoping for carrots. Not today, I tell them. I'm sorry, we are making a flying visit. I glance gleefully at Miss Stamp to see if she appreciates the joke, but she still has a rather fixed, anxious expression. The small disused tack room is a fairly new discovery. Recent terrible weather led me to investigate the Bifron's outbuildings for sources of possible amusement, and in the tack room I have found a world of delight. A laboratory, essentially, in which I can experiment with my flyology plans. From the various hooks that hang on the walls, I have hung ropes and saddles and scuffed girths. Now, as Miss Stamp watches, she is part assistant and part safeguard in these flyology sessions, I hoist myself halfway up a rope and begin to swing an Ada pendulum from side to side. Do be careful, says Miss Stamp. I am always careful, I tell her, swinging more vigorously. The rope creaks on the hook, sounding like an animal in pain. I can hear one of the grooms shouting something to a stable boy, an instruction of some kind. I do very good thinking when I'm swinging, I say. My heartbeat is quick, the blood rustling agreeably in my ears. There's such a delicious rhythm to it, this way, that way, the slither of rope against wooden wall... An idea comes upon me. Oh, Miss Stamp, I say, remember the steamboats on the lake at Lucerne? Well, if we can use steam to power boats, then why not machines that can fly? What if, what if we were to design a flying machine in the shape of a horse, larger, of course, with a steam-powered engine? My governess gives a little shriek as I let go of the rope at the top of an upswing and propel myself in an arc across the room. I land in a heap of straw, laughing uproariously. Miss Stamp hurries towards me. Oh, Ada, are you all right? Better than all right, I say. We must go back to the library now and draw some more diagrams. You've been listening to On the Radar, Conversations with Extraordinary Women in Science. On the Radar was produced by Jonathan Moore and me, Julia Gray, and mixed and edited by Jonathan Moore. And with special thanks to Paul Black, Rob Farramond, Chloe Sacker, Louise Lament, Mara Alperin, and today's guest, Dr. Vanessa Lowe. Music by Second Person. I, Ada is published by Anderson Press and available wherever you buy your books. <laughs> <laughs>